How's it going everybody? My name is Christopher and this is not Leighton today. This is actually our GM Kelly McCoy at Partners Dog Training. Um, we're really excited to have a new guest kind of. <laughs> we're going to be doing more of this uh, this year on the Oostasian Show. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the behaviors that we work on here at the school, um, what they mean for your dog and why we should work on them. Uh, but I'll let Kelly give a little bit of an introduction to herself so that uh, you guys can find out a little bit more about her. Thank you. So hi guys, like Christopher said, my name's Kelly. I'm the GM here at Partners. I started at Partners as a client about 13 years ago. Um, so I've been in pretty much all of your shoes, so I get it. Um, I started as an employee about seven years ago and then I became the GM about three years ago. So a little bit of background about me. I've been here for a while. Um, done a lot of work in the kennels, do a lot of work in the classes. 90% um, of the time if you're calling, I'm, I'm on the phone with you, talking with you, asking, you answering questions, asking questions from you as well. Um, so I'm always here if you need me. Cool. Yeah. So we're going to get into um, the different behaviors that we work on and what usually is found in our report cards. So one thing that we do that pretty much no other training school that I at least know of does um, is we send daily report cards. We try to send them daily to all of the clients for dogs that are here in training with us or dogs that are in daycare and so forth. Um, one way is it allows you to track progress at home in real time to see what we're working on, why it's important for your dog. We also have a PDF that is included in that that um, explains kind of what we're going to go through today in terms of each behavior, um, but we're also going to include this in those report card emails so that way um, you guys have a little bit more background details and so forth in what is going on in your dog's training as well as why it should be important for you to know about it so that way you can work on and transition that training that's happening here at the school for when your dog goes home um, because that's really the most important part is making sure that you're educated just as well as your dog is in how to address all those behaviors. So um, report cards are really, really important for us. Like I said, it helps you track progress in real time. It also keeps us accountable and making sure the training that we're doing is effective. Um, and it also is a good way to communicate between the other trainers and so mm -hmm. forth because we have trainers that work with different dogs. Um, the biggest reason why is because we want to make sure your dog not only works for the one trainer that's working with it, but also with everyone else that's working with it. Because at the end of the day, um, they should be listening to whoever's training them because that means that they must listen to also you at home, mm -hmm. um, which is again, another thing that really no other facility um, that's you know meets medium medium size or small can do because they just don't have the staff to accommodate that um, so it's a really really great thing that we have here we also have in the report cards an effectiveness rating do you want to go over the effectiveness <laughs> uh, rating yes. of the training session yes yes um, so effective effectiveness rating goes from zero to ten um, and it's kind of an arbitrary number so it, that being said like something that I feel like I was working on with your dog and they maybe got like a seven or an eight, I'm a little bit of an easy grader. So like I might give that and be like, yeah, they did great, they did wonderful. Um, whereas another trainer may have worked on something similar, maybe a different behavior and given them like a four or five because they're a little bit more stingy with their numbers than right. maybe I would be. Or even your dog's behavior that day. Like yeah. your dog's- They're you know, in a mood. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, the effectiveness rating is, is a little bit more arbitrary, but it also makes sure to help the trainer kind of analyze like, yeah, how effective was that training yeah. session to help with the problems that they came in for? Um, so that's a, another thing to kind of, you know, keep an eye on if you do ever work with us. Uh, like, you know, I never went through this at the beginning. If you do want to work with us, we're here in Cave Creek, Arizona. You can look us up at partnersdogs.com um, and find out more information. We have a whole facility, huge facility and a lot of staff to accommodate pretty much anything under the sun when it comes to your dog. 
Lots um, of upgrades too. Yeah, lots yeah. of upgrades that we just introduced. Um, so I want to go into the first type of behavior that we work on, and that's going to be duration. Uh, so give us a little bit of a background on what duration is and why is it uh, necessary for any, any dog's training? Yeah, totally. Um, so duration can be um, any number of things. Um, so more than likely in the beginning of training, we're going to be working on duration as far as, um, like, for example, sit. So if I tell my dog to sit and my dog pops its little booty on the floor for a second and then instantly pops back up, my dog obviously needs to work on duration there um, so it's not that instant gratification of I did it was metric kind of deal so that's an example of a beginning level dog working on duration um, as you go into the more advanced dogs or the dogs that are towards the end of like say their training camp for example um, when you're talking duration you're talking basically proofing a behavior um, so we add in the three D's that I, I call it so distance duration and distraction so for example we do this a lot on place so dogs laying on place and we can probably get into that later what exactly that means so dogs laying on their bed place we're going to be running past them with other dogs. We're going to be throwing toys. We're going to be jumping around like crazy people, like all of that stuff. And that is absolutely something that tests duration, dis distance, and distraction. And why would like dis duration or distractions in a dog's training be important for their success at home? Oh, there's so many reasons. So when it comes down to it, for example, if you're using place, and I keep going back to place because that's a great example of duration, um, for, while you're eating dinner, um, if your dog doesn't have duration on their command, then you're gonna have to get up five six seven eight times to get your dog back on place so it's not sitting there drooling all over you um, so that's one of the things where duration helps also if you have kids little ones running around you're gonna want your dog to be able to hold that duration down stay or sit stay or any all of those commands and being able to maintain until you give them something else to do right yeah and in distractions especially for dogs that are reactive or aggression in that case like just mm -hmm. being in the same presence of another dog or another person in that environment is a distraction yeah. enough and being able to introduce control structure and foundation um, into their training when those other distractions quote-unquote are in place even if it's not a physical distraction in that moment moment like direct in their face it's still just being in that area might be a distraction enough and that's why um, which is kind of what I wanted to get into next is uh, crate training so what's the process that we have for crate training specifically just in a really quick breakdown yeah sure so the first thing we do is we introduce um, crate to dogs in a positive manner so we never want to just open the door and throw the dog in that's always that's that's a no um, sometimes there needs to be a little bit of like more encouragement like let's go come on you're fine um, but for the most part we teach dogs to just go in and out in and out in and out through the double doors and then we teach them just to go in and then we go in and sit and wait for their equipment to come off and then we talk more duration within the crate and things like that so crate here is considered to be a way of us um, spatially controlling our dogs without us having to like physically have them um, and working crate here helps them understand that hey I'm gonna get to you later even if there's a bunch of other dogs like you still have to hang out and relax until I, I'm able to get to you gotcha mm -hmm. so an important part of really any type of training and uh, is another term that we use here is engagement um, so explain quickly what engagement is and then what happens if your dog is not engaged or in, yeah what happens if your dog's not engaged yeah um, so I'm sure every pet owner can relate to this where they're asking their dog to do something like maybe walk on the leash and not drag you or run across and try to trip you and kill you um, where engagement basically is like hi I'm over here and if I call you if I say something to you I want you to disengage from what you're talking about or what you're looking at what you're trying to play with what you're trying to you know eat off the floor or whatever and I called you so I instantly want you to come and look at me um, and that's a that's a game that we play with puppies the first thing that we do when they come in puppies obviously being adult dogs too is we teach them that 
no matter what's happening in the room, if I'm talking to you, if I'm engaging with you, if I'm playing with you, if I'm trying to get your attention, we're gonna get it and we're gonna have fun doing it. And that's the number one thing that most owners don't have like a good grasp on to be honest with you is engagement with their dog for them to be looking what's next what do you want what's next um so we like to make it a fun game we incorporate it in our beginning level classes and lessons and things like that we feel engagement is very very important so what's the easiest way to get a dog in engaged with you if they're not yeah, sure. Trying to do so. Sure. Um, I play the name game with my dogs. Um, so, for example, what I'll do is in the beginning stages, I'm definitely going to have some kind of leash on my dog so I can be like, hey, <laughs> I'm over here, come here. Um, and I call their name and I run backwards. So I call their name, run backwards. Sometimes I turn and run because I'm not all that graceful. Um, but then I teach them that, hey, when I say your name, I'm going to do something fun. And then I'm going to bring them back. And then as soon as they turn to look at me, I'm going to use that yes word marker. Um, yes. And pay them with the food or toy or whatever I'm using. And I'm just going to make it a fun game. And the best way and the fastest way of doing that is to play the name game and make it fun. Usually the chase helps. Gotcha. Yeah. So... Um Mark Jessen cost, uh, commented here, if your dog is not food, treat, or toy motivated, what are the option, other options that you can use? And I know that obviously reward is important for um, especially engagement, but really any type of training. So what would you recommend in that case um, for someone that has a dog that maybe isn't motivated by the normal um, strategies that we use in yeah, training? Totally, by the easy stuff, right? Yeah, so those dogs are a little bit harder to get motivated. Um, but most of the time you can find something that that dog likes. And typically when it comes to those dogs that don't have big motivators on food or treats um, or toys even, um, it's going to be pet praise and it's going to be verbal praise. Um, so like, for example, when your dog's doing a good job, you might feel a little crazy, um, but me saying, oh, good dog, is very different than me being like, oh, what a good boy, oh, and just like making a huge party about that. And most of the time, dogs that like our engagement, like our verbal, like us petting them, like us like talking to them, basically, they're going to love that, and they're just going to go for it. We train dogs here that don't like food, don't like toys, don't like anything, um, but we can get them to work for us in the fact that they, they'll like verbal and physical praise, right? So that's definitely a go-to for the, those pups in the kennels, too, that do the same Thing. And another thing too is, I know we don't you know push it a ton, but also you know limiting maybe praise in certain situations. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of times where people give their dogs too much praise and then it doesn't mean anything anymore. Just like if you had a, a significant other that you were told in, you know, telling them, I love you without any really purpose around it, um, then it loses its meaning and so forth in that instance. So when you have praise in the same aspect, if you're over praising, that can actually lead um, to a negative experience for your mm -hmm. dog as well because they aren't earning that in any way. And then they'll start taking advantage of that as well. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's kind of one of those things where we have to make the the praise match the action, just like the correction match the, match the action. Um, that's probably an easier example to give um, at that point. So if my dog like breaks a sit stay or something like that, I'm not gonna go and scream and like freak out and go psycho. Um, like I think Layton calls it psycho mom is what he says. Um, I'm not gonna do that because it's just a sit stay. But if my dog were to like try to eat another dog or my dog, I might go a little bit like uh, more towards that, not all the way, but a little bit more towards that because the action m met that response, right? So if my dog is working on, if my dog already knows sit or something like that, I might be like, oh, good dog. Um, but if I've been working on down like tirelessly and my dog just didn't get it, didn't get it, didn't get it. And then all of a sudden my dog went into a down, I'd be like throwing a full on party and like woohoo and like dancing around and freeing my dog up and making it a big deal. Um, Cause then they've realized that, oh, so when I do that, we have a party. Mm, I'm gonna do that more often. Right, cool. Yeah. 
So switching paces a little bit, going into some of the more advanced obedience type stuff. So backup is a is a thing that people is kind of a cute trick as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then that starts with the hind end awareness. So can you explain kind of those two things? And then what are like the steps into getting into each next behavior? And then I'll talk a little bit about a dog that I saw the other day that uh, had a really well done uh, hind end awareness. <laughs> hind end awareness is actually sometimes difficult to teach because some dogs really don't know they have a butt. They just don't. <laughs> um, so as far as that goes, like backup is one of those more advanced behaviors. It's one super fun to teach. Um, there's a couple of different ways to teach it in the the fact that like when we're working and specifically looking for hind end awareness, um, I teach it in a specific manner. Um, so basically, and I, what I'll do is I make a, a change in surface. Um, so either my dog moving from tile to carpet or my dog moving onto like a bed or some people use like little two by fours, um, something like that where my dog can use its back foot and touch that one particular thing and then I mark and with a yes and pay that then my dog learns to use their feet um, to find that their back feet I should say to find that object and so you're really teaching very specific thought process behind hind end awareness um, and it's really helpful for dogs that like maybe rush thresholds things like that or wanting their food dish um, I use that a lot for my my one dog Maddox I move him back all the time back up back up and he like moves his little booty back and he loves it but he knows like hey I want you to back up especially when I have six dogs crowding me and I'm giving one dog attention and love like I use that for just a practical example um, is back 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 and they'll, they'll move back and do whatever they gotta do Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so what's the next step after you do teach your dog a little bit on the high end awareness and say they can, you know, effectively go from, effectively back up, what's the next step after that? Um, so there are different things that people do. Like I've seen people do some crazy stuff, like having them like climb walls with their yeah. back feet, which is really cool. That's one of my next things. If I wasn't so lazy, I'd do it. Um, so backing up that way, um, ladders, people mm -hmm. put like a lot of PVC pipe ladders and they'll teach their dog to walk backwards that way. Um, but by teaching them where their, their hind end is, you're gonna, it actually has an effect on heel as well. Um, so when you're working heel, if you're doing like pivots where you're moving in 90 degree increments, your dog will then learn to move its butt along with you instead of needing to like do this whole big long loop reset yeah. thing. Um, so it actually, really helps with solidifying heel too which comes down to that more advanced pretty type obedience um so that the hind end awareness really does help there like in rally and stuff like that yeah i saw a dog the other day on america's got talent where oh, yeah. the did you see this i i love those dogs yeah no, this one is, is really good because they the guy did a um he did like a handstand Except the dog's feet and his feet connected, and then they went up together. Yeah, it was kind of cool, like into yeah. like a little bridge. So it was pretty impressive that the I'm dog really had that much that. control. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. So one thing um, that also kind of falls into back end awareness and also um, kind of goes back into the obedience thing is a flip to heel. So mm. describe what a flip to heel is for people that might not know anything about competition sure. uh, obedience or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so flip to heel essentially is if your dog's in the front position, so um, basically toes to paws with you, um, and you would tell them at that point heel. So ideally what I like to see and what I strive for in my dogs that I'm working with me personally as well as here at the school is I like them to move their, their bottoms into heel. So like essentially they would stay facing me and then scoot their little bottoms around and into that heel position. Um, so that really helps solidify the heel position. Honestly, like there are different ways to bring your dog back to heel um, but I just think that looks really pretty um, mm. <laughs> and so that's one of the things that I like to look at and, and then that goes into like a round 
yeah so around would be yeah the, the opposite way but keeping them nice and tight and it basically engage with you too because then my dog doesn't have the opportunity to like move backwards behind me and then flip themselves around and then do that stuff because if you have a dog that is potentially reactive and maybe you have a dog behind you and you don't see them coming if they're moving back and then back into the front position I don't know if you can see my hand um that's something that you're going to want to avoid um so like if they're looking behind you and like oh mom's got her head turned well yeah, I'm left, left hand I'm very very left heel centric <laughs> um so if they're going this way and then back up into heel you're going to have that problem where they're like oh there's somebody back there mom doesn't see him I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a little turkey yeah. um so that's one of the things that I obviously watch for when, it, when when my dog's going behind me at any point especially if I have a dog that's prone to reactivity or aggression gotcha so um these are all like very, very advanced obedient mm -hmm. behaviors. What happens when you're very, like your first time starting on a behavior and, and practicing a, a technique called shaping? What, mm -hmm. what does that involve and why is that a good way to do it and what are maybe some other ways to, to teach yeah. that behavior? Definitely. Um, so shaping is something that we use quite a bit here. Um, and for I'll give heel as an example. We use shaping for heel a ton. Um, in my opinion, when you shape a behavior, it actually hardwires better for the dog so, because it's the dog figuring out what you want as opposed to you like essentially forcing them into either position or whatnot. Um, so I really like to use shaping specifically for heel. Um, so to give you that example, um, whenever the dog comes into my left-hand side, <laughs> um, yes, heel is on the left. Um, so my left-hand side, I'm going to yes, mark that dog yes, and pay that dog for coming to my right hand or my left-hand side. I might be doing right turns. I might be doing left turns. I might be doing resets. I might be doing all kinds of crazy movements. But every time that dog comes into my left-hand side, I'm going to yes, mark it pay him for, with food or toy, whatever I'm using. Um, it, so that way he figures out, oh, so when I go over to her left side, I get something for it. Um, so that's really important for a dog to be able to figure out. So if I do that, I get this. If I do that, I get this. And that's one of the things that I feel like shaping really helps mm -hmm. um, with hardwiring better because the dog actually did that itself just with my guidance. That's it. What's the, is there any requirement for like a intellectual level of a dog in order to be able to use shaping as a behavior like for instance if you have a dog that maybe isn't as driven such as like a border collie and maybe you have a dog that's just not um, is that still an applicable um, training method or is it really matter for them to be able to like kind of process like oh I got paid if I went into heel correctly and so I'm going to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, I think it depends on the dog, like you said. Um, so that that's one of the things that I kind of look for. Um, so it's not the only method of training it, and it's not necessarily the best method for every single dog. Um, so for dogs that are maybe less motivated by things like petting or treats or food or whatnot, then you might go a different route. Um, and you might go into more like correcting when they move out of heel that kind of thing and that's more towards the other area that we do as well but shaping is my favorite um, but I think that if you have engagement on your dog um, then pretty much every reward style would work in shaping because um, if you have enough built into your dog as far as engagement goes and they, them caring about your um, verbal or pet praise then I think that you could use shaping it would just look a little different Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about impulse control because I know that that affects a lot of behaviors and so forth. What um, what are some what is impulse control first, and then what are some behaviors that go along with impulse control or commands that go along with impulse control, sure. and then what type of behaviors um, you know does it affect down the line? Yeah, totally. Um, so impulse control was something that 
we didn't quite have like a term for um, until recently. Well, nothing that we had like put together. It yeah. was more just like quit being a wiggly boy or quit being a wiggle pants or whatever. A big thing with dog trainers when you teach yourself, like you know what something is or what it means, <laughs> but you don't necessarily have like the scientific term for it. Yeah. And then you find another clever person that yeah. uh, defines <laughs> it and you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna steal that. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, so as far as impulse control, a lot of times we see um, dogs who lack impulse control um, just as an overall ability to get them to stop doing what they want to do and start doing what you want them to do. Um, so a good example of this actually was a dog that Emily was working with in the office today. Um, as far as impulse control goes, she likes to, she really likes people. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I happen to be one of those people that she really likes to jump on and get crazy with. Um, so Emily, Emily used me in that training session to really work on impulse control. So the dog, for example, was in a down state. Um, and I was like moving around and like, oh, hi, and making our goofy little noises that we make here. And she had to maintain that down because Emily had not released her from it. Now, once that was done and she learned and she stopped like jumping up every five seconds and stopped doing the army crawl and all of that stuff. But at that point, her mom is really interested in her paying attention to her regardless of the people walking past, the dogs walking past. If somebody dropped something or whatever, she would just like boom right over there. Um, so that those are just some of the little things that we'll do as far as impulse control is concerned um, and making sure that they have the ability to understand that even though you really, really want to go say hi to that lady or that person or that kid or whatever, I've asked you to do X, Y, or Z and I'm expecting you to do that. That's where the impulse control comes into play. Is it always um, like an excitement thing or could it also be more of a reactive thing or is it also maybe you know uh, peeing on the floor is like anything considered an impulse and impulse control or is it specifically you know excited type behaviors um most often it's associated with excited type behaviors but i definitely see it within reactivity too um so i wouldn't say that like like the example you gave potty on the floor that kind of stuff mm -hmm. i wouldn't say that that necessarily equates um the excited piddle might be a little bit something but mm -hmm. at the same time um i think when it comes down to the impulse i think the impulse is just whatever the dog wants versus what you've asked them to do Mm -hmm. um, so like, for example, a toy um, or, for example, the pool. Like when my dogs see the pool, oh, my gosh, no, nope, not happening. So there's zero impulse control there. Um, so like that's kind of the thing. It's just whatever the dog wants and is going to do, going to take, going to go for, we have to make sure that they're under control and we're going to work that impulse. So an, a very common impulse is for a dog to charge through a door ahead of someone. What's something that we would implement in that case in order to guard against that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that is actually covered under thresholds. That That's what you'll see on your report cards. Um, so if you ever see thresholds, it means that your dog's trying to bust its way through every door <laughs> and drag us along with them. Um, so that's one thing that we do work here. So we basically teach them that the doorway is not for you to just go and do whatever. Um, the doorway, you're expected to sit and then be invited either with me out or you're going to do a stay and I'm going to invite you out later. Um, that's really helpful for dogs who happen to like run away. <laughs> that's one of the biggest things that people say, oh my dog, once the door's open, they're just gone. Escape artists. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that a lot of people struggle with because they've never put the idea of, hey, when you're at a threshold, you need permission to cross that. Um, and so that's one of the things that a lot of people kind of miss when they're teaching their puppy stuff is that threshold thing. Um, also the back door, like the front door is one thing, but the back door is quite another. So if you say so like people who have irrigation or maybe they have, you know, maintenance guys or landscapers or something coming over and you don't want your dog to go busting out the back door because then they're probably jumping on somebody or being, you know, naughty to them, you're going to want them to have a nice solid threshold so they know, hey, I'm not allowed to go through that door unless they've told me I can. 
So when your training thresholds, does it, is it every single time you go through the door? Is it every single time you go through a gate or is it only, you know, sometimes or only when they're charging out ahead of you? Or if say they're walking nicely at heel and you're going to open a door and they stay nicely at heel, do you still go through that same practice or do you just go through the door normally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I say the more consistent you can be, the better. Um, because dogs don't understand like circumstantial things like, oh, we're, you know, in a hurry or whatever, or, you know, we got to get through that door because it's hot outside and we don't want to, you know, let all the cold air out or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's best practice to have the same rules every time. So if I'm walking through a door, you're going to sit and then we're going to go through at least in the beginning until your dog can differentiate different circumstances. Um, right. So that's one of the things that I'd, I'd say like my dogs at this point going outside, like they know they're allowed to go outside, but at the same time, if they're going and they're just charging the door, that's going to be a big no. And I know, uh, uh, and I make them go through. If I find that maybe I'm losing control of that threshold, then I'll go back to that same thing of sit every single time, sit every single time. And with six, it's a little hard, but at the end of the day, if I've noticed that I've really lost control of that particular threshold, I'm, I'm working it because obviously my dogs have had a little bit too much freedom with that. Um, so I'd say in the beginning, best practice is every single door, every single time. And then from then on, um, you could loosen up on it a little bit if they're being very respectful of it. But if you do it enough, if you're consistent enough, maybe one day you'll be, you know, busting through the garage to go into the, you know, house or whatever. And your dog sits at the threshold and is like, okay, well, when are you going to let me go? I know I think Jen's dog does that sometimes where she's walking ahead and she's Violet's sitting there like, what's up? Um, so like, that's the kind of the funny thing is the patterning really shows there. So if your dog's like yeah. hesitating at the door, um, then that's one thing you're going to kind of watch for. Gotcha. And then let's say in another situation of impulse control, um, when a dog is say in the house somewhere and then someone rings the doorbell and knocks <laughs> on the door or just in general, if a you know, stranger comes into the house and your dog is very anxious or insecure, what's a, a good, um, command or a position in that specific uh, situation yeah definitely um so doorbells door knocking is hard <laughs> it's hard um but that's one of the things that we i i would like to use place for and that's what i suggest most people do um is use place um, for that so that way and a lot of people actually get to the point where they desensitize their dog on the doorbell so ding the doorbell and i'm just using this as a particular example so ding the doorbell correct the dog for barking like a lunatic. Mm -hmm. um, now, some people are like, oh, but I want my dog to bark and alert. Okay, so there's a difference between bark and alert and then not be quiet when I've asked you to be quiet. Mm -hmm. um, so like that level of energy. And when you have multiple dogs, it's even harder. Um, so that's one of the things that I'd say is a difference there. So like quiet, that's enough. I've got the situation. Now go lay on your bed, place. Mm -hmm. That's what I would prefer. Or I crate my dogs because mm -hmm. um, there's just so many to watch at any given time. It's harder for me, so I prefer crate. Um, now I think that that's going to come down to the situation. So like a dog that's nervous of new people or nervous of big crowds, or you're not sure what your dog's going to do. I would say crate for that. Um, and having a good send out to crate. So that way your dog knows, Hey, when I say, you know, fluffy go crate, they book it into their crate and they know they're going to get a reward or at least verbal reward, sometimes food. Um, and then put them in there until you've had your you know friends, family, whatever come in. Um, and then you let them out if you feel like it, or if they're going to be nervous the whole time, they can hang out and it doesn't no sweat off the dog's back, especially if they're nervous. Yeah. You're not going to want to put them into that situation. If you have a dog that is exuberant, um, when people come over crate might be a good idea to start and then place 
So go to that bed, lay there, or we'll turn around, face me, lay there, stay there until I give you something else to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with new people in the house, especially like kids and more high energy people, it's very hard for them to maintain that position, which is where the impulse control comes back in. Because I don't care if those people are hugging and laughing and doing whatever. I asked you to place, I asked you to stay, that's where I want you to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the impulse control again wraps around to be helpful in those cases. Okay. A couple things. Um, so you mentioned going back and using a crate if your dog is insecure, they maybe are reactive and so forth to strangers coming in. Um, I know a lot of people's big complaint is, oh, but will that turn crate into a negative scenario? Um, because then they'll think, oh, whenever someone comes over, I'm going to go into crate. Um, why should that not be an issue in their mind? Yeah. Um, so if you keep crate relevant and if you keep crate positive, you shouldn't have too much of that. Um, now, sometimes they're going to be like, yeah, I'm not feeling crate today or yeah, I'm not feeling that today. Um, but at the end of the day, if they're used to being in the crate and used to having um, good experiences in there, like, for example, I feed all of my dogs in crate, so they love it. Like, as soon as I start moving dog bowls around, they like, boom, 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 they all jump in. It's pretty funny. Um, so when people are over, in fact, I've had people comment like they are fully shocked that I have as many dogs as I do because my dogs are so used to being in crate. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they're a little barky, so I have to control that. But at the same time, like they're they're happy in there. Um, and so if you're utilizing crate correctly and in an appropriate manner and not as a punishment or not as only you only go in the box when I leave or the box when people come over, then you shouldn't have too much of that association. Yeah, yeah. my dogs, the other day, even when uh, when we were just sitting around, the crates were open, but they were lying out with us, and then they just went and laid in their crate mm-hmm. because that's where they Just chilling. Feel. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, going back to the place command real quick, what is there? Is there any good tools um, or you know, things that you use when training the place command that makes it really effective and easier to train? Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that we incorporated, and I'm going to try not to hit Chris in the head with this I joked I said I was gonna smack him with it um, is the treat and train so this is big and awkward and wonderful um, so this is actually a remote control based um, treat dispenser basically and it has a remote to it and you can click it and then when they go on to place then I can get some distance there and reward them um, so this yeah I'm like yeah so <laughs> So then the trainer has a remote on one side, the dog is in a, pla- uh, in a place or maybe even a crate if you're trying to train, you know, crate to be yeah. a positive experience. And then the treat and train is with them so you can continue to have a conversation with them. You can continue to reward them, mm-hmm. um, but from a distance away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we use these a lot. Um, and honestly, I wish that they had more than just four channels because um, we have four of them. I'm gonna try not to turn everything off here as I move it back, but we have four of them and they are like in a constant rotation. The trainers love these and they actually make a sound. I don't know if this will pick up, but I'll do it. That beep sound. Um, So if you guys are familiar with clicker training, um, which is the same as my verbal marker of yes, um, same concept, um, that noise, that sound, my yes, the click, all of that stuff means that you're getting paid or you're getting fed or you're getting whatever. Um, In this case, they're getting fed. Um, And it's funny because like dogs that are trained on treat and train, if somebody else is using that treat and train in the room, they're like, I heard the beep, I heard the beep, it's hilarious. Like my dogs, my border collie specifically, really love these. Um, and so they're, they hear the beep and they get really excited about them because it means you're getting something for doing a good job. So yeah. it's kind of fun. And then Jen had a really good question here. So let's say you're working with a dog and you're just get, starting to get them on the, on the place and they haven't you know, built a lot of duration yet. 
um, and so you're still next to them, but you still are using the treat and train in training. Why would you use it if you could simply just you know go down and, and hand them a treat from mm-hmm. yourself? Yeah, so I like to be able to pay my dogs without me being in the picture. Um, and so that comes into play, especially with a play scenario or a crate scenario. It's a way for me to be able to reward my dog without me physically rewarding my dog, um, which goes into a lot of dogs that come in have separation anxiety. Um, and so if I'm always the one delivering the, the food, at this point we're talking food reward because um, that's what the treat and train does. Um, but if I'm always the one delivering the food and the only time they ever get anything as far as reward goes is if I'm in the picture, then my dog's definitely not going to be responding in the way that I want it to if I'm not in the picture. Um, so this allows us to do, or if I'm even 20 feet away. Um, so this allows us to obviously reward the dog from a further distance and not having to be right on top of them. Because I should have to be right on top of them in order for them to go to place they should be able to send dogs from however long yeah yeah so it's so is there any other types of tools that are a similar type of communication device from a distance away um, maybe ones that have a, a negative outlook yes, on them in yes. most situations. I forgot that I was going to grab it out of my car. E-collar. Yeah. Is that where you're leading? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so e-collar. Um, a lot of people are, are freaked out by e-collars. Um, and it's simply, I really feel like it's just a lack of education at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I used to be a little wary of them, to be 100% honest, when I was new to the game seven years ago. We still use them um, sparingly. And a lot of times in rattlesnake avoidance training, you have to have a way of correcting them. Um, we're not correcting them, but delivering a negative association from a distance because um, I don't want the dog to associate me. I want the dog to associate the smell, sound, scent, all of that stuff. Um, not the sound. No, sorry. I'm like, my brain went boom. Um, anyways, so I want sound them and, to be. Sound and sense. Sound and scent. Yes. I didn't say sight though, did I? I don't think so. But you I was just, just said rolling. not the sound. And I was like, not sound and not sound. the sight. The yeah. scent and sound. There yes. we go. I got my S's correct. Um, so yeah, I want them to be able to associate their correct thing instead of me. So e-collars also work for things like barking in crate, um, barking at the doorbell, barking outside, um, all of those things. I jokingly, and please don't be offended by this, but I jokingly say God's watching. Um, if I'm working on something where literally I'm standing there and the dog's like, yeah, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm not digging. Nope. And then I walk in the building and instantly that dog is boom in the, in the mud, in the yeah. dirt, digging because their owners don't want them to dig up their drip system anymore. Mm-hmm. So I give them a nick on the e-collar, a stem on the e-collar, and most of the time they're like, whoa, because they had no idea that you know they could be corrected for something like that without somebody in the picture. So oftentimes mm-hmm. we'll stand um, in the windows all creepy, and that's actually how I worked on my Golden Doodles poop eating habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people actually call with that one. It's it's very gross. Yeah, it's a yeah. very, very common issue. Yeah. Actually, our uh, cash golden retriever has a very big issue with eating uh, cat poop. So yes. um, definitely need to train on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, that's the thing is it's a way of them because he wouldn't do it when I was standing out there. He's like, now nah, I'm good. I'm not going to snack. And then as soon as I turn him out there and not be around watching him, he'd be like, you know, looking for the best pile to, mm-hmm. you know, snack on. Um, and I literally would run from window to window so I could see him, so I could give him the stem on the e-collar and actually was very effective. Yeah. Yeah. And so an, e- an e-collar is used a lot in, um, in positive type behaviors oh, yeah. where it's like recall or mm-hmm. just simple obedience. So how would you use an e-collar um, very, very briefly in recall? 
um, type behavior training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's considered to be a dog's working level. Other trainers use a different term for it, um, but basically it's the lowest level the dog can feel. Mm-hmm. Um, if ever, and if anybody's ever used a TENS unit, like at the you know physical therapist, yeah. something like that, it feels similar to that. It's a lot less powerful though. Like, yeah. I know oh, some yeah. of those get up to a very, very <laughs> yeah. high amount. I'm like, no, I'm good. Turn it down. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of that similar feeling. If you've never felt one, talk to somebody who knows how to use them and, and feel it because it's really way different than you'd think it would be. Now, granted, working level and correction level, higher levels feel different. Um, so that's why the working level works for teaching things. Like, for example, an e-call or recall. So a longer distance recall. I have my dog on a long line so that way I can directionally tell them what that feeling means. And then I apply that um, the working level and I hold until the dog is com- complying and done with the behavior of what I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, for example, and every dog's different. Some dogs don't need it the whole way, but some dogs do. So I'll hold my working level until my dog comes all the way over and sits when I call them. And then as soon as they are done with the behavior, I let off the working level and yes, and reward them. Mm-hmm. So that way it's kind of like me doing this to you and like going over here, over here, over there, over there. Oh yes. And being done at that point. And that's when I let go of that pressure. Do you still mark that with the reward? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Especially in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. You're always going to want to reward, even if it's verbal, even if it's like, Oh, what a good dog. And mm-hmm. that's enough. Yeah. Not every dog needs a treat for every single thing. Gotcha. And then, What's another way to work a recall if someone doesn't want to use an e-caller? Um, you know, 90% of the time, if you, honestly, probably a higher percentage, if you have name game engagement that I was talking about earlier, you already have a recall. Yeah. You just put a sit on it. Yeah. Um, so being able to get your dog's attention from anywhere and then telling them, hey, you know, so-and-so come. And that means our, our come command means come to me and sit in front of me. That's a two-part command. And I'm not done with the behavior until my dog's bottom's on the floor. Because in that way, my dog knows that it's not like, hey, how you doing? See you later. It's stay there until I give you something else to do. And it's a more stationary position. So just calling them, having a long line on them if you need it, 30 feet, 30 feet of margin of error, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to bring them in. But like I said, if you have that engagement, you have a recall. Yeah. And then one last thing that I want to get into because I know we're running a little bit long and we'll probably actually have a, a, a part two to this because that way we can uh, cover everything else because we're only about halfway through. Um, what would be, uh, so muzzle training. So muzzle training is a, is a really big thing, especially for dogs that are reactive and, and maybe need a muzzle. What are the, the step-by-step processes for introducing a dog to a muzzle, getting them comfortable with it? And how does that process work, especially with a very, very reactive or aggressive dog that doesn't even want you near it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of people have trouble with muzzle. Um, and I don't know if it's more of like a, a, a you know, negative stigma thing. Um, but ultimately, the way that I view muzzle, and just to put a side note on it, is it's like a seatbelt. You hope you never need it, but it's there if you do. And if you train this properly, it's a wonderful piece of equipment to have for just in case, especially if you have dogs that are reactive or are aggressive in some instances. Mm -hmm. And even dogs that don't show those tendencies. I've even had a dog I took to the vet who actually like went after the vet and it was like the most happy-go-lucky, like easygoing guy. And like he tried to eat the vet over going near his butt. And like, I was shocked. I was able to react quickly, but I like literally never would have thought this dog would do that. And then we had to muzzle him in order for the vet to see him. Um, and so at that point that dog hadn't been counter conditioned or trained to like muzzle. Um, and so that freaked him out even more. So then I had an even bigger problem. So I don't think it's a bad idea for everyone to train their dogs, even if they're the friendliest dogs ever, because there's Mm -hmm. always that situation that could come up. 
and it's how you train it, right? So keeping it positive. Um, so the muzzles that we like the most here, now every dog's different as far as which muzzle is going to work for them, but these are Baskerville muzzles. Um, that just happens to be the brand, but it's a basket. It's got plastic, it's full enclosure, um, so with obviously big, um, big holes. There we Sorry. go. <laughs> <laughs> obviously has big holes, so that way the dog can drink, the dog can eat, um, the dog can pant. Um, this The only thing that this doesn't really allow for is a bite, although they still can get a bite, um, but you wanna make sure that we are nice and happy and with this. So the way that we first teach muzzle, um, I was gonna set it down. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's like, they can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and, and, and there's a, the reason why that there's bigger holes in these is for- Reward. Reward training. Being, yeah, being able to reward them. And then also, if you have a dog that's in muzzle, not, some trainers do this, we don't do this, um, but they leave the muzzle on um, for a longer period of time, like extended period of time. Um, but the dog can still drink, the dog can still eat, the dog can still function within the muzzle. I don't. I have trouble with that, but like that's that's their thing and they do that and that's totally cool. Um, but what we do is we teach the dog to willingly put its face in muzzle. Um, so at first we like to shape it if we can to like trick them into putting their nose into the muzzle. Most of the dogs that come in here though already know what a muzzle is and they're like, oh no, no, mm -hmm. not doing that. And so sometimes we get some triggers from muzzles um, on dogs that are aggressive or have aggressive tendencies. Um, they are like, mm-mm, and they go and fight and like crazy. Um, so we have to counter condition it. So of course they get you know corrected for trying to eat us over the muzzle um, and then we'd slowly make it a positive. And so ultimately the goal would be I'd hold up the muzzle the dog would stick its face in the muzzle, I would strap the muzzle on, and the dog would be able to walk, function, do all of the obedience stuff, walk, you name it, on muzzle. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me. And like I said earlier, it's more of just um, a safety thing. Yeah. So like if, for example, we're in playgroup and we're working on, you know, dog reactivity or whatever, and something happens, something unexpected, then I know that my, this dog is, is a safe dog and I can handle what this dog is going to do. Right. Um, so that's kind of the thing. In, in muzzle training, we want to make sure that dogs can fully function in them because a lot yeah. of times they'll hook and they'll use their dew claws and they try to get them off. Um, we actually have seen dogs come in with their dew claws ripped off from actually trying to get muzzles off. Hmm. Um, so that's something that we work really hard on making sure that dogs aren't doing here. Yeah. Um, now sometimes they do and we do get onto them for trying to pull it off and things like that, but we then turn around and make it into a positive thing. So like, it's kind of like when you pull up, like you pick up your dog's leash and they're like, woohoo, we're going somewhere. And like, it's like the craziest thing and they're yeah. so excited. Um, that's how muzzle should be for dogs that need it in mm -hmm. more everyday situations. Yeah, and what's on a completely different note, um, a lot of times we also use muzzles in like protection or mm -hmm. sport dog training um, to actually test a dog's ability to go out and send out for a bite um, without a person having a suit on because sometimes dogs will actually get suit happy where they'll only bite in that instance if the person is wearing a suit and then the instance that the dog doesn't or the person doesn't have a suit on then they won't bite in that instance. So um, completely off note of what we do with muzzles here at, uh, at uh, Partners but still an interesting thing that mm -hmm. uh, is also another side topic and, and tool that, that's used in those scenarios. Uh, so like I said I think that uh, we're going to wrap it up for today. We have a lot more things that we're going to cover and so probably we'll do a part to next week maybe even a part three if we can't cover everything mm -hmm. um, but let us know if you guys have any questions drop them in the comments below and uh, we'll see you next week wednesday around 6 p.m pacific standard time thank you guys again very much for watching kelly i'm hoping we'll come back again next week and hopefully i didn't scare her away with this <laughs> no it wasn't too bad i just there need to go. figure out where you guys can see <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's pretty much the bottom of your microphone oh, okay because so. i'm short yeah okay much. good <laughs> all right 
So thank you guys again very much and uh, hope you guys have a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks guys. Cheers. Uh, I'm like trying to act like